Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast. My guest today is um, Jordan Thompson. His pronouns are he, him, his. Jordan, would you please introduce yourself to the audience today? Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Jordan Thompson. I am an activist and community organizer from New Hampshire, uh, and I am very, very excited to be on. Um, I've been a big fan of the podcast and just been listening to some episodes over the past couple of days, and I'm very excited about contributing to this conversation. Well, let's get into it. As we always (laughs) start, folks, let's start with why is it important to cause a scene and how are you, Jordan, causing a scene? That's a great question. Um, I believe that it's important to cause a scene because there is such a need for big, structural, bold, and radical change in our society. And that sort of change does not occur when people are comfortable. Um, It doesn't occur when people are complacent. And so in order for that change to come, um, we need to cause a scene. And I cause a scene by doing something that I think a lot of folks take for granted, Um, And it's very simple. Um, I cause a scene by speaking truth. And that truth may not always be popular. It may not always be what people want to hear. uh, But the truth has a lot of power and has a lot of substance to it. And it's what exactly you need to get a movement starting, um, started rather. And it's it's incredibly important to me. I was staff for Senator Kamala Harris back when she was running for president. And she put such a large emphasis throughout the entirety of her presidential campaign on the notion of speaking truth. And like I said before, it's such a simple ideal, but it has so much power behind it. Um, And when she spoke truth, again, it was something that was not always popular um, when it comes to acknowledging the dangers of the status quo and white supremacy uh, in particular. Um, there are many truths that are deeply embedded in the foundation and the bedrock of who we are as American people. And it is sort of uncomfortable a lot of the time to acknowledge that truth. And sometimes it's inconvenient. But I believe that it is always convenient to speak truth. And so long story short, that is how I like to cause a scene. Um, And I hope to continue that work throughout the, the rest of my life. All right. So I wrote down speaking truth because this has always been <laughs> something I, growing up, I got in trouble for. I so got in trouble. <laughs> I was always in trouble for speaking my truth. Now, I'm going to be honest. In many of those cases, speaking my truth was the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet those around me were, I was often told that's not the nice thing to do. That's impolite. That's, and so we, I often got these mixed messages as a child. Mm-hmm. Don't lie. Right. But only in these circumstances do, do lie. And mm-hmm. then when you lie, then you get in trouble for lying. And it's like, wait, right. whoa, whoa, <laughs> what is going on? Right. Um, I was just literally in a Slack 
conversation with a friend who's saying um, that her organization knew what they were. She's frustrated her her company. She's like, they knew what they were getting when they hired me. And I was like, yeah, but did they? Because what, <laughs> what, what often happens, and it reminds me of when I'm, you know, being in the dating scene. I've mm-hmm. often been that that person who guys are attracted to because I'm, you know, not one of the guys, but I'm just real. I'm just honest, right? Yeah. Until that, I have to turn that honesty on them, and then it becomes a, a, a detriment. Then that becomes a a, a law in me because I'm like, well, but I, you, I, I thought you like honesty. Wait a minute, hold up. Right. So you only like certain types of honesty, <laughs> you know, and right. that is what we see so often. People playing these. So when I said that about her job, I'm like, yeah, do they really, really want your honesty? Did they, mm-hmm. because you came in and you checked the box. Right. You said what they, they um, wanted to hear. But now that you're saying for us to accomplish that, it's going to take A, B, and C. Now people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't know about all that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I just, um, because I do want to talk about the Kamala Harris um, mm-hmm. campaign, but I don't want to talk about it and how people think I want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about it from somebody who's on the ground because what people, what, I, what, what, and, and as you know, my, most of my audience is white folks. What you don't mm-hmm. understand is our showing up in the room is political. Right. Period. And so I, 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 when I started this, I tried so hard not to be political. I really did. I tried mm-hmm. to, to, to weave and bob and, 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 and I realized that just my opening my mouth, just being a black woman who is joyous in this world, who's doing work that challenges actively in their face, challenges status, the status quo and white supremacy is mm-hmm. political. So I've right. stopped running away from being political. What I'm I don't. And so I'm saying that to say I don't want this conversation to be about whether she would have made a good candidate or not or, you mm-hmm. know, um, president or not. I want to talk about all the ways her speaking her truth as a human and you being seen that. What was that like? Because I can tell you when she had to drop out of the race mm-hmm. because of financial issues. Yeah. Um, and I'm using air quotes because right. we understand why there were financial issues um, that broke so many black women, professional black women's heart because we saw for months, how she'd been treated. And we've been, right. and, and it was on a national, international scale that we saw the, the, our lives under the same microscope. We've all been treated that way. Right. And so it was less about, for me, about was she going to be, I knew this country wasn't ready for a black woman. So I was, but what I, what I was interested in, I love to see her walk into a space, take up space as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And stand in her truth, right? And that was so such a political statement. Just standing in her truth, and I just I don't have the, I haven't had this opportunity. So with somebody who was there, who witnessed it, could you just mm-hmm. talk about what that? Because you're a black man, right? Right. What was that like? It was incredibly powerful, um, and it was sort of the experience of a lifetime. Um, I like to say that my entire road to where I am today has been paved, um, you know, by incredibly powerful black women. 
Uh, and I stand, I think we all stand on the shoulders of giants in that regard. Um, one of my, you know, biggest inspirations politically and elsewhere is, you know, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. She was the first one to do this. She was the first black woman to say, I am going to run for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States because I believe that this is a constituency that has been left behind for far too long. And I want to represent not just my community, but the entirety of progressive America in a way that has not been done before. And she did it in a way that was unapologetic. I mean, her, her mantra was, I am unbought and I am unbossed. And Kamala Harris, um, you know, we came out with our campaign colors and we were paying tribute to Shirley Chisholm's historic campaign. Um, Throughout the entirety of her campaign, she talked about that speaking truth. She talked about um, that this is an inflection point uh, in our nation's history where we have to really sit down and look in the mirror and say, who are we as Americans? Um, these are so many values and things that we have enshrined in our constitution and um, that we say that we're about, but we've never really quite lived up to those ideals. And so with the election of Donald J. Trump being a response to the election of the first black man president of the United States, Barack Obama, she really wanted to get into that space and say, we have to do better. Um, but we also, there's, there's so much that we can accomplish unburdened by what has been. Um, and it was an incredibly powerful experience. Every single time I had the opportunity to see her speak, every single time I was able to engage with a volunteer um, who was excited and enthusiastic about her. And you're absolutely right on the point about that she was held to such a high standard, um, sort of with the, the scope of her prosecutorial record. You know, we have folks in the race currently who never received that scrutiny, but were arguably worse prosecutors. And so when you have a black woman who is trying to, you know, seek any kind of position of power, these things are going to come up because people are not comfortable with her. They weren't comfortable with her causing a scene. Um, and she was, was, she had faced this challenge of, do I want to speak that full truth? Can I even speak that full truth and be considered a viable candidate? Because to what, what you were saying earlier, I think as black folks, we, we walk this line through our professional lives and our personal lives where we have to really pick our battles when it comes to telling the full truth. Um, and we have to sort of prevent, sort of present ourselves in many areas and capacities as people who don't want to be stepped on. But we also have to acknowledge that if we were to talk about the harm of white supremacy, mm -hmm. we could face um, retribution. You know, we, we could face consequences. And so there's that culture that has, has played into, um, you know, Kamala's candidacy. But to your original question, I think it was, it was just an incredibly powerful experience that uplifted me every single day. She was, mm -hmm. in every sense of the term of the phrase, she was a joyful warrior. She was someone who came to work every single day, and she knew that it was going to be very difficult. Um, she had no illusions about um, the American electorate, and she dropped out when she did because she knew that she would not be able to take care of her staff, 
that she would not be able to take care of the communities that we have invested or we had invested in um, in a way that was that was sustainable through primary day. And you have a lot of candidates that are still in the field now that are not even, you know, doing that. They're not even living up to that ideal. And so she is just sort of a class act. Um, but it's, it's just so unfortunate that throughout the entirety of the primary, she was attacked relentlessly. You didn't see many of the candidates come out in defense of her. Um, and, you know, we go back and forth on this discussion of party unity. But when it came to her and her record being attacked on the debate stage, there were no calls for party unity. When it came to the uh, misogynistic attacks on her personal life, there was no call for party unity. She was held consistently throughout the entirety of the campaign to a much higher and different standard than everyone else was. Um, and so that that is deeply unfortunate. And I hope that through all of our work, we can build not just a democratic party, but a political system that is truly representative of the people who who give us our victories. I mean, let's, let's be clear about this. You know, black women are the people that are showing up for Democrats every single election cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a lot of, a lot of noise, a lot of, um, feedback about how we should vote like a black woman. Oh. And, you know, and I'm sure you've heard it. Of course you've heard it, but when it was time for vote for the black woman, everyone was nowhere to be found. And now, um, that, and now, and now that she's out the race, I'm so sick of white liberals, white progressives mm-hmm. demanding that we vote for their candidate. Right. The man saying to us, if we, if we, I mean, I just saw a poll that 53 percent of um, Sanders voters, mm-hmm. I mean, supporters say, if he's not the nominee, they will not vote. Mm-hmm. And yet, when black people have a legitimate reason for saying none of these candidates talk about race in a way none of these candidates have any policies that will that will prioritize my needs and ensure that i or even minimize my harm let alone not being harmed and yet we're you're demanding of us to follow behind people who are essentially either on the scale of assimilationist or segregationist there there is not an anti-racist candidate on them they will not even talk about racism um, and harm in the same breath that they talk about any of their policies. It's always something so totally right. separate from that. And, and, and go yeah, ahead. go ahead. I, I wanted to say thank you for speaking that truth. And, you know, because you brought him up, I want to speak to this particular instance. Um, we hear so much and we get so much flack when we wait, when we bring up that very valid point, that there is not an anti-racist candidate on the debate stage or any stage rather. Mm-hmm. There's not a candidate who's prioritizing the needs of black America. There's not a candidate that is really willing to look at policy through a lens that is intersectional. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they are, are willing to trot out their black surrogates mm-hmm. and trot out this academic language to pander to us. But when it comes to actual substance, it's nowhere to be found. And what we've really seen, I think, throughout the entirety of this process, it's very funny because after, and, and funny maybe is the wrong term here, <laughs> but the, the midterms, it was all about vote like a black woman. We have to make sure that we don't uh, take this constituency for granted. But what you've seen consistently throughout the entirety of this process is that white working class voters are prioritized at the expense mm-hmm. of everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think the best example of that was what we've seen in the past couple of days with uh, Senator Sanders accepting the endorsement of Joe Rogan. Mm -hmm. And not only is he accepting the endorsement, 
but his campaign is doubling down on it. And so when we look at someone like Joe Rogan, who is an outright racist, who is an outright misogynist, mm-hmm. who goes on his podcast and he makes jokes about black people calling us Planet of the Apes. And there's a, a 30 second compilation of him saying the N word in whatever context. Mm-hmm. And he is just a, a downright deplorable human being. But the message that you're sending to black voters and other voters of color is that you are willing to completely throw us under the bus, back up a few times and then some, just so you can entertain the possibility of grabbing a small percentage of his base. And that's all based on a hypothetical. Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. And that's all based on a hypothetical. And, and, I, and I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to challenge that because I um, don't believe that's, I, I honestly, if, okay, so if you follow me, you all know that I, all white people are racist. That's it. Right. So I don't believe that is, is, is that. I believe fundamentally just because of the things that I've seen from from the candidate from that specific mm-hmm. candidate and right. he is he is so close to a segregationist to me he to mm-hmm. me isn't i don't see him as much different from trump i don't i do yeah. not see much different from trump um mm-hmm. i and it and it, it and his followers or this subsect of bros who right. There's an article that just came out about them attacking um, their news people who have to have security around them because of mm. these individuals. That is not as and, and you won't call that off because it also feeds because the reason I said I challenge that is because he they don't couch it as, um, um, you know, I, I'm this guy is this what they mm-hmm. couch it as is fun and which is fundamentally white supremacist is all speech is equal. Right. You know, instead of talking about equity, it's about right. equality for them. So for them, my podcast having an hour long and Joe Rogan's is hour long is the same. No right. matter that Joe has a bigger audience, he has more power. He's a white dude. His voice right. carries more. He has more influence than my voice. So instead of talking about equity, we want to talk about equality. And that right. to me is bullshit. I don't want to talk about equality because there's right. nothing of equity. Uh, um, there's no way I can equal that. Even if I had the same number of followers, my, right. my, 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 the people who listen to this podcast are totally different. They're not, right. they're not that rabbit, um, um, eh, kind of people, you right. know. Um, right. So, so even if we had the same number of followers, um, my followers are learning a strategy of how to do something to break down systematic. We're not, we're not this angry. Uh, we we right. focus on prioritizing the most vulnerable. You know, it's like right. we have this different core values. So, exactly. it would, so it wouldn't even be this. So that conversation gets me. But I wanna, I wanna bring up something. Because I really want to dissect this with someone. And and, mm-hmm. and, I, and and because you were close to the campaign, that means you read her stuff and her policies. Because I really want to talk about how, and this is where I, 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 I say, um, 
I don't see much difference between um, any of these candidates, particularly the the, the Bernie and it's just how his whole it, it's his culture that is right. so toxic to me it reminds me right. so much of toxic tech. Um, right. It's just just deplorable to me. But I did a recent video about why how Medicare for all can harm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just going to break down for those who didn't see it, but I want to break this down and I, and I want to have this conversation because again, this is not about a specific candidate. This is about right. a policy that several people are debating whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. Right. So on the surface, Medicare for all makes sense. Mm-hmm. It is healthcare. It should be a human right. Yes, right. that makes absolute sense. But from a, okay, I'm going to put a period on that because I'm not going to say but. So period. Mm-hmm. The challenge is when I even look at Affordable Care Act, and I'm going to get back. I mean, all this, you know, people is all going to come together. Right. So the Affordable <laughs> Care Act was uh, uh, an, uh, an, an um, uh, opportunity to get everybody health care. Well, I live in a state that did not. I, I was um, unemployed. Um, I've been, been trying to build a business. I live mm-hmm. in a state that did not opt into Medicare. So mm-hmm. although I uh, uh, qualified for health care um, because, Medi- because of the Medicare thing, I did not get it. And yet, because I could not afford the health insurance, I was penalized. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you that. that put, I'm saying that to put a pin in that because I need people to understand why these are systematic issues. And you throw in a policy on something without dealing with the system that you're attaching it to causes further right. harm. So now you're all, you're now disenfranchising the poor. You're disenfranch- right. I already can't afford to pay for this insurance, but yet now you're charging me, you're penalizing me for not having it. I get right. it. It makes sense in theory, but in the real world, things work out differently. So now I'm looking at Medicare for all and it sounds great. And then I have, I can bring up very, I can bring up three very clearly well-researched reasons why it will cause harm to the most vulnerable. One being, um, when you look at um, those individuals who are practicing, um, learning to be physicians right now, still mm-hmm. in, in 20, 21st century, there is research that shows there are physicians to this day that believe Black people have thicker skin. So our, our um, epidemic level is thicker. So we don't, we, so it's, um, we our, our, because our thin and skick, excuse me, because our skin is thicker, um, we, we, the harm that happens to us wouldn't be, it would be more harmful for, for white folks, you know, mm-hmm. if they cut themselves or they bruise themselves because they're thin, right. their skin is so thin and ours is thicker, um, which explains why black people did not get, um, caught up in the opioid epidemic at the beginning because we weren't getting the pres- prescriptions because no one believed our pain. So mm. there are doctors being trained right now who believe that black people have a higher threshold for pain, even though there is no scientific um, 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 scientific reasoning for that and have thicker skin. Where in hell is there? Where are they getting that if they didn't learn it in the books? So again, okay, so it's a part of the system. It is right. the white people. This is how people think about blackness. Where mm-hmm. no one has to communicate it verbally, it is commu- of, and then it is still communicated. That's number one. Mm-hmm. The research has shown when you um, um, account for income, when you account for professional, um, education, um, class, 
black women and black babies are having the hardest time with infant and pregnant and women mortality rates in childbirth. That is over poor white women. So, okay, that's two. Three is there are, in the state that I live in, they are shutting down um, because there is no Medicare option. Okay, let's go back to um, uh, the um, Affordable Care Act. Rural, mm-hmm. rural communities don't have access to the same amount of health care or quality of health care that someone in, a, in an urban city has. Right. So just with those three things, that has nothing to do with ha- giving everybody Medicare. I mean, right. uh, insurance. That, again, is about you're talking about equality. It's not right. about equality. It is about equity. How do you right. how do you deal with those things? If you're not dealing with those things, Medicare for all will only be a new policy that is slapped on a racist white supremacist system, which will continue to harm individuals. Yeah, I, I hear you. And, you know, it's important to note Kamala Harris was the first and at the time only candidate to come out with a plan to address uh, black infant mortality, um, maternal mortality. And since her departure from the race, we've had other candidates sort of attempt to take credit for that idea um, or to sign on to that idea. Um, But I think to your point, with something like Medicare for all that, you know, I support it. I think it's a good idea. But all of your points are incredibly valid. And why that particular, the points that you have brought up are not being applied to the current conversation is because when we talk about you know, systemic oppression, it's always in a way that is anecdotal. It's always in a way that is uh, sort of like an afterthought mm-hmm. instead of um, it's treated. Well, it has to be because the, la- the people who are remaining don't have that lived right. experience. It has to be right. anecdotal. It has to be theory right. for them. They have no practical right. experience with it. And they also talk about it in a way that is like an intellectual debate or an academic debate rather mm-hmm. than something that's actually mm-hmm. affecting people's lives. And so this is also... Um, Something also to note is that I think many folks on the left view these systems of oppression, um, I don't think they really understand what a system of oppression is. And I think that they view racism as something that is some sort of uh, personal indictment on an individual's character rather than the reality that it is, which is a system that has existed since the very founding of this nation. Um, it has existed for centuries outside of this nation. And it is not something that can be magically cured if you uh, sort of slap uh, one particular policy on it and expect everything to be well. Um, and racism certainly you know, wasn't cured when you marched with Dr. King 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we have to be talking about it in a way that is nuanced. We have to be talking about it in a way that really prioritized, like you said, the most vulnerable of our marginalized communities. Um, And the candidates are just not doing that. I think the candidate that comes closest to doing that is Elizabeth Warren. And I'll say that because uh, I think she has enlisted the help of a lot of incredible um, Black activists. And she has Julian Castro, who I endorsed after um, Senator Mm -hmm. Harris dropped out from the race. But even her history with race is problematic. That's, okay. <laughs> and so that, okay, so I want to hit on two points. I want to hit yeah. to your point about it, the, they, they take it as a personal uh, uh, attack. It's because whiteness is always seen as an individual and everybody else is groups. They're right. not, so every, they take credit. If they have any success, it's always them. We, right. t- we understand that our success is based on the, 
the support of our families, the things they have to right. give, have to had to to uh, endure or give up so we could be where we are. And right. so, and you know, like our, you know, the 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 it takes a village. We Absolutely. come from we come from community, and that's one of the things that I see is is failing us right now is that black communities have adopted white centric ways. Right. And so we're become we've be, we're becoming increasingly individualized. Right. Um, whereas it's all about me getting mine. Right. Um, and you get there any way you want to, but they don't understand that wh- it works for white people because the system works for them in that way. It right. does not the system does not work function for us in the same way. So when we leave behind, there's nothing else. There's nobody else coming back to get right. them. Right. I agree with you. There's no system that says, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt or I'm going to assume positive intent. None of these things are in place for our black and brown brothers and sisters. And this is a thing. And so I agree with you. To me, Warren is the closest. I cannot get Mm -hmm. past the the Native American, the indigenous. I can. I'm having a hard because they don't they have yet to address it in a way that that community has said is efficient. Mm-hmm. We don't get to say that she's apologized right. and all is forgiven. No, 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 no. That com- the community right. in which she harmed is the only community right. that can say, hey, we accept your apology and what are you doing to make amends? It's not just the apology. It is what, what are you doing right. to make amends for the harm that you caused? And I have yet to see that. Right. And until she gets that, to me, she's on the She's on the, and there's no shades of gray with racism. So it's like, you just, uh, right. ah, it's just, oh my God. <laughs> it's, I feel it's so you. Frustrating. I feel it's you so on that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and to point, I think the other thing is um, the story itself is, is sort of laughable oh. because, you know, we're black. We, we grow up hearing our grandmothers and our grandfathers tell us how we have 5% Native American in our blood. And how, you know, way back when this person was indigenous mm-hmm. and not for a second. Did we t- check I, a box? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Not for a second have mm-hmm. I ever met mm-hmm. a black person who has claimed that heritage because we know better. Mm-hmm. So why did she not know better? I mean, she was a grown adult and she was using mm-hmm. that heritage as a, as a means to advance her career. I'm going to tell you why. Because whiteness also benefits from uh, um, systems put in place to help the oppressed. They right. always find a way. To, this is why white women are the chief benefactors of affirmative action. People right. want to think it's a whole bunch of Negroes running around. No, 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 no. It's white right. women. Right. Because they find ways. This white supremacy, white system, when you default to whiteness, it sees itself in everything. This right. is why it gets pissed off when they can't come in certain spaces because right. they're like, what the fuck are you saying? We get <laughs> right. to go everywhere. We right. get to be in everything. We get to be in the narrative of everything. And that narrative always positions us or casts us as hero or victim. It's right. We're never a villain. What are you talking about? I right. can't come in. Why can't I come in? Well, that's right. reverse. I mean, this is what, and so this, that narrative that plays in my head is when I mm-hmm. see her. And it's yeah. unfortunate because I do believe of what's left, she's, she's, would be closer to um, my vote. I'm with you on that. And yeah. I just, and I, and it's so funny because what I just I tweeted this past weekend is what you don't realize is that for many in the black community, 
we're going to be voting for the vice president. Right. We're not voting. Yeah. The, the, none of none of the presidential candidates in, appeal to me at all. I need to see who you bring and in as, exactly. as as your vice presidential candidate. Right. And, and that's that's completely valid. And I will also say that um, on the subject of the vice president, when you look at the polls, who is polling the best with mm-hmm. African-Americans? Mm-hmm. It's Vice President Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people on the left, when I say a lot of people, I mean a lot of white bros on the left are throwing up their hands and they're wondering, why on earth is Joe Biden, crime bill Biden, you know, polling so well with black voters? A, 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 a certain, they, I want to be clear right. before you, a certain a certain community in the black. Right. They have a, yeah, he has a stronghold in a certain right. sect. Right, in older and they, black and voters. They, and they ain't letting go. They are not they letting go. they don't trust your white ass. Right. They do not trust you. They're going with the devil that they know. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and that is, that is the best way to illustrate my point. Absolutely going with the devil that you know because... So many folks, so many political analysts, you turn on CNN, they're, you know, wondering what's going on here. Um, you go on Twitter, of course, all the bros are, um, are throwing up their hands and wondering why this is the case. But the way that we vote as people is in a way that is about harm reduction. Yes. <laughs> it, it is the most simple thing, but so many people don't understand it. You know, this is a man that we have grown to know because he was vice president to the first black president of the United States of Mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. We saw him in action for eight years in the White House. That doesn't mean that, you know, he's the best on the issues. That doesn't absolve him of the way that he treated. At this point, I don't even think people give a shit if right. his point is on the right. issues. As exactly. long as he as long as he does not get in and do worse than Trump right. with a small T, right. they don't care. And the other thing is that a lot of folks in our community often come out and support and vote for the candidate that they think moderate white voters are going to come out and support for. And I think that's that's what happened uh, when Secretary Clinton ran in 2016, why she had enormous black support while Bernie Sanders was off to the side and calling black voters conservative because they didn't want to support him. Um, We stick with the devil that we know, but we also want someone who's electable. I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm and for prioritizing the most vulnerable is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1, Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side.
Have a wonderful day. We stick with the devil that we know, but we also want someone who's electable. And, and, and go ahead. And that's um, and that speaks to um, um, that speaks to the fact that we don't trust white voters when they go in the ballot box. Right. That that you have proven to particularly this group who have this is a generation. And when people say slavery is over, no. You're talking to a generation of people who, as children, had to sit in the back of the bus. Right. Who, who marched, right. who had hoses and dogs turned on them. This is that generation. Right. And they do not trust white people, particularly white women, right. to go, well, they don't trust white men, but particularly white women who will say something in their faces right. and who will go and pull the, pull the click for white supremacy, right? Because white women literally breed white supremacy. They under uh, this is a generation of, if not them, their parents worked, in, especially if you're in the south, worked right. in black white households, white households cleaning. Right. They, this is very real for these this this group of generation, this right. generation of people. And then I want to say to those people who, they're like, but the younger generation, younger blacks are with Bernie. Yeah, let me. I want to talk about that for a second um, because <laughs> I have some theories on that. Um, and it's because this generation, millennials, mm-hmm. are the first generation to be raised. There is no color. Mm-hmm. We're all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, they had parent. They had friends who had parent black black kids who um, had white adoptive parents mm-hmm. who they were all in the same car pulled together right um all of these things so they have not experienced or they have not had conversations around race that i grew up with mm-hmm. and this probably is your generation too yeah um yeah. yeah you have not had the conversations that i had um about how to go out the house and how um i grew up in the south you know mm-hmm. how to stay safe around race because it was we don't talk about it in right. your generation my generation we talked gen, gen x we talked about it right. because our parents were baby boomers. Our grandparents were sharecroppers. Right. You know, we, this is very close to us. Right. So we have a, some kind of remembrance of, of this. And what happens is, and I see it time and time again, it takes black and brown men and women to get out of their parents, this, this kumbaya households mm-hmm. and go into the real world and start working their asses off as we often do and real try and for the first time see that Becky and Chad are having a different experience than Hakeem and and um and Yolanda. Right. This is so you get your I I I would I would say give these same individuals 10 years mm-hmm. and they will have totally different perspectives because they will have totally different issues, particularly we haven't made any progress with inclusion and diversity in these companies. Right. About their experience and seeing how Becky and Chad are advancing and they're pretty damn mediocre. I have this degree. I have several degrees and I can't get ahead. And then they start breaking this shit down. Right. You, a lot, most people in this group have not hit that yet. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I absolutely agree with you on that. And that's part of the challenge of the work that I'm currently doing. So some more background about me. I mm-hmm. live in New Hampshire that is 90% white. Um, a lot of my work, I've been organizing on racial justice over the past couple of years. Um, and I've been able to do that work because of the incredible leadership and guidance of a lot of the black women that are here, um, you know, leading the way. Um, but there is so much 
to be done. And that is the understatement of the century. <laughs> um, but my, my struggle has been connecting with groups of white people who don't even know what they don't know. And so I'll, I'll give you a few examples. In, in 2018, I was running for the New Hampshire House of Representatives, and I was sort of running in a primary that was, um, I was very clearly the outlier candidate. I was someone who was 19 years old in a primary with uh, people who were 60 plus. I was the only black person in the primary, the only person of color. Um, I was the only queer person in the primary, and I was the only one that you know, was talking about race in a way that challenged people. I was very much causing a scene. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I was working with so many uh, groups and with community partners and with organizations. And I got very used to being that person who was only included in decisions uh, when a company needed me for their photo op or mm -hmm. when an organization needed me to fill their diversity quota. And Throughout the entirety of sort of my, my young adult years, I've lived the mantra of Shirley Chisholm's, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And I desired that folding chair more than anything else. I wanted to be in those spaces. I wanted to be a part of the conversation. I wanted my voice to be heard because historically, it's been excluded and silenced every step of the way. Um, in 2019, I... I'm one of the New Hampshire co-chairs of President Obama's My Brother's Keeper Initiative. In 2019, we had our five-year summit. Um, and of course, My Brother's Keeper was formed after the uh, shooting death of Trayvon Martin to address some of the socioeconomic conditions that led um, to that scenario. And a lot of them that still exist today. And a lot of the work that we do is centered around mentorship and engaging with young people, particularly young men and boys of color and communities that um, they are disenfranchised. And so we had our five-year summit in Oakland, California, and I sat on a panel with about four other youth from around the country. And we sat in this room, there were about 250 or 300 kids in the audience, and they all talked about uh, their experiences and their work. And at the end, there was a Q&A between us and the audience to sort of talk about um, what our next steps would be and how that work could translate um, into work that they could take on. And so there was a question that was posed to me at the time by a member of the audience about what the meaning of power is. And of course, I got that. And I was like, of course, you saved the most difficult question on this panel for me. Um, but I, I had to sit there and think about it. And the answer that I came up with, believe me, I stumbled. I said, uh, you know, power to me is being able to get in the room and um, you know, sort of get the gears turning in order to begin to change hearts and minds. Because I'm coming from an organizing background in New Hampshire. In 2018, I, like mostly by myself, organized the city's first ever Juneteenth event. And the following year, we got it uh, enacted by our House of Representatives and signed by our governor. And so I am you know, operating from a position which racial justice work is not something that's happening statewide. Many folks are not treating it as a priority. So while a lot of folks in the other room are doing really advanced academic racial justice work, I'm just trying to get folks to listen to me in the first place. And, you know, the audience is kind of like, oh, that's a good answer. But, you know, they didn't think too much of it. And, you know, the entire rest of the conference, I was like, how could I have answered that better? After I sat down in the audience, the next speaker was uh, Roz Baraka, who's the mayor of, of Newark, New Jersey. 
And he sort of called me out. Afterwards, I was like, you know what? You did not have to make this point uh, by calling me out. Like he called me out and he said, I want to thank that young man for coming up here and talking about that Shirley Chisholm quote and how we all you know, should fight for our seat at the table. But then he said, we need to move beyond that. We need to think past that. We cannot only operate in a way that is about fighting to get into somebody else's space and to, mm-hmm. and to beg someone else to let yeah. us speak. We have to build our own table. And mm-hmm. ever since then, I have lived in that ideology. I really thought about it for several months afterwards. And I was like, yeah, he called me out, but he had a great point. And mm-hmm. I think that sort of speaks to the, the generational divide among candidates, among uh, folks who sort of view race in a different way, is that this new generation, they just, they've seen, I think, in some aspects, there are some you know, corners of the African-American population of the young people that have seen a system that has failed them time and time again, mm-hmm. that has failed their grandparents, that has failed mm-hmm. their parents. That has, yeah, they have the historical perspective. Right. Yeah. They have that yeah. historical yeah. perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they they want to burn everything down. They don't, yes. they don't mm-hmm. want, they don't see any. And I'm with them. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm with them. You know, I'm with them because they don't see any point in continuing on this trajectory that we currently are of, of, you know, sort of, um, Saying, putting okay. ba- to me, it's like putting band-aids on on a, on a on a bullet wound. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> and and what is that famous Malcolm X quote about being stabbed and then removing the blade a little bit and saying everything's okay? You know, this is yeah. sort of the life that we have lived up until this point. And there was that sort of sliver of hope that we got with President Obama, but the the white status quo stopped him at every mm-hmm. single yep. junction, at every single point that he tried to make a positive difference in people's lives. There was and, obstruction, but, and, and and was held accountable for the. Stuff he couldn't get done because of them. Absolutely. <laughs> and so every single point, every single history that we have learned about, every single year, every single family member that we uh, have been raised by, we have heard these stories. We just want to burn everything down. We don't mm-hmm. see the purpose in, in being just satisfied with everything as is. And we don't want to go back to mm-hmm. before 2016. Mm-hmm. That was one of the, the things that I love that Kamala incorporated into her stump speech. You know, a lot of folks want to bring us backwards. A lot of folks want to return to... Because that, that, was, because that was when they were comfortable. Right, that is because exactly be, when they were Let's be honest, most pe- m- many of these white folks who are all woke now right. did not become woke until um, November 2016. Right. When they were like, "Oh shit, there is racism." Right. These people have been telling us this for because we have a black. Pre- no, 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 right. no, 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 no. There's right. a black man. This is a, this is also an issue. What I take with in Doctor, we just as a group starts just finished reading, um, how to be anti-racist by Doctor Kendi, and he mm-hmm. says that black people can be racist, and this is where I take issue with him because he says that black people have power. And I'm loving that you're having this conversation because when I sat back last year and decided what did I want to focus on? Was it money? No, money does not get me what, uh, it, that's something that's tangible. Right. But everybody with money does not get what they want. What I want is power and influence to change my industry. That's right. what I want. Right. When you have power and influence, money and everything else you need comes with that. Right. So Obama had power. He had no influence. He couldn't. He couldn't influence McConnell to do right. any damn thing. So this is where, because uh, even right. when I say power and influence, it's only at the rate, and I'm I, I, I'm clear about this. It's only at the rate that someone in whiteness 
allows me to have that power and influence because it benefits them. It benefits them. It's not benefiting me. That's exactly right. uh, And they can take it away from me at any point. So how the hell do I have real power? I don't have power, uh, fundamental power that I can yield how I want or influence how I can yield how I want. I literally have conversations where I'm on Twitter where they're um, in a white person's, usually a white dude's DMs, and telling them what to say to somebody who, who they're engaging with who won't listen to me. Right. I'm literally saying, okay, type that now. Type that now. Right. Type that now. How do I, how can I be, I can't. I don't have, there's nothing about my power that is mine. Right. Everything about my power is given to me by someone else. So I don't have inherent power. Right. Or it's viewed through the lens of whiteness. Absolutely. Oh, not or, and. Yeah, and. <laughs> and. Exactly. It's never, it's never not viewed through the lens of whiteness. Right. Never not viewed through the, and I want to um, ask this, because this is going to be, a, I think, an interesting question, because I have some challenges with my brother's keeper. Mm-hmm. So I want you to talk to me, It was because I really see um, my brother's keeper and a lot of the things that Obama's saying here lately, mm-hmm. um, as because it, it, like we, like you said, we can't go back. Right. Obama and that, and that's also ab- about those um, that 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 baby boomer generation. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. who are assimilationists. It's like let us, right. let us get in, be like them. And you're right. This generation is like fuck that. I'm wearing my hair the right. way I want to wear it. I'm going to be big right. and have my ass out. I don't care. I'm just going <laughs> to, you know, I'm right. going to do my thing. And so I have challenges with a lot of what Obama is saying recently that I didn't have before because I didn't understand right. it at the time. And now that mm-hmm. I have more understanding, I'm definitely in the frame of where we are today that that shit just does not work. The whole... right parenting and if you're not talking to me about how our black community got here on a systemic level i don't want to hear about individuals i don't want to hear about individual communities because again it goes back to what i said power and influence they have no real power influence to change anything yeah i i agree i think locally you will find in many sort of chapters or groups that are working with mbk you will find that there is a conversation that is being had that is not as one dimensional as the national narrative has been. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also say that, you know, during that summit, there was a New York Times article that came out um, a couple of weeks afterwards um, talking about what had been said by President Obama at the town hall that we had. Uh, he was there with Steph Curry and we were all on stage and he was, you know, taking questions from the audience, but also speaking um, to a number of issues. And there was sort of the, the phrase of respectability politics mm-hmm. that was that was thrown yes. out mm-hmm. because you know he loves to to talk about he's he's very fatherly you know he loves to talk about how we need to pull up our pants and you know you know wave our fingers mm-hmm. and and, uh, and he sort of waves his fingers at folks who are listening to rap music too loud and you know mm-hmm. it, there's that conversation about respectability politics that I think is really valid and frankly I have. I have no time whatsoever for respectability politics. It's I'm also not about it's also about civility, which right. is which is optional for white people and expected behavior of people of color because it helps us manage our own behaviors. Right, right, and, and it's a tool of white supremacy, and we mm-hmm. have to call it out yes. for what it is. Exactly. Um, and and so I I totally understand sort of your hesitation when it comes to my brother's mm-hmm. keeper. Um, I will say that there are some incredible, you know, young men and boys of color that are doing incredible work in communities like Sacramento and Baltimore and mm-hmm. Chicago um, and then elsewhere in, in very impoverished areas 
Um, and they have access to resources and opportunities that they didn't before. And that's mm-hmm. a great thing, mm-hmm. but there's still a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. We have to, and this was one thing that I really love that president Obama talked about during the summit that I don't think was touched upon in the New York times piece is that he talked a lot about undoing what toxic masculinity has enforced mm-hmm. on us. Um, he talked about how, you know, it has given us this very one-dimensional vision of how a man should act, mm-hmm. particularly a black man should mm-hmm. act. Um, and he, he, there was a moment where he turned um, sort of in Steph Curry's direction and said, you know what, you know, being a man isn't about how, you know, how bad you can make somebody else feel or to tell somebody else, you know, you have more than them or, or you uh, have better clothes than them. Um, it's about being, you know, compassionate and caring and being vulnerable and acknowledging. And those definitely are uh, emotions or, or a states of being right. that black men are allowed to even ha- have or express Absolutely. in any way. And so there's, there's so much work to be done both internally uh, and, and the outside world on that issue. Um, and, I, and I absolutely, you know, share your concerns and they're, they're valid. Um, and again, what you point out, though, is that there are no absolutes. These right. aren't binary issues. Right. So I'm very happy to hear that um, that a group of, of, of black men are challenging what mat- tox- what masculinity, I'm going to call it toxic, just what masculinity right. looks like and allowing all the various ways in which it shows up in the world to right. be what it is. Um, right. Because because of the, the, the toxic masculinity, um, um, it is decimating our communities. I mean, right. black trans women are being killed by black men Absolutely. At, at, at horrendous numbers right. because of the masculinity issue. They are, black men aren't, um, and I, I don't think any man of color is not allowed to show right. emotions, let alone explore right. um, anything that is not conventional. Speak of that truth, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just look at, um, um, I'm going to get his name wrong. Little Nas X. Yeah. Little Nas X. Yeah. Yeah. I knew it was something with the X. I knew it it wasn't just little Nas. Yeah. Little Nas X. When he came out and said he was gay and he was like, did y'all not see that in the thing? And then people were like, so why would he do this now? And da da da. Because that's that generation of like, oh my God, you're going to ruin your career. Right. And I love um, this and so it's it's interesting because as a generation Xer, we don't get mm. the credit for being the bridge right. between pushing back at our parents who were boomers right. Right. and paving the way for your generation to throw off everything. Right, and I, yeah, I agree with that. I gotta say, you know, I I'm so hopeful for the future. I'm a little skeptical and concerned, but I'm also very hopeful when I see folks like. Uh, Lil Nas X and Tyler, the creator, they both mm-hmm. had an awesome Grammy wins last mm-hmm. night. What that means for representation, because representation absolutely matters. What yes. that means for me as someone who's a black queer male, I can think back, you know, 10, 15 years ago growing up in, in Hartford, Connecticut. I felt like I was the only one who not looked like me, but felt like me when it comes to sexuality. Mm-hmm. And to turn on the TV now and know that there are so many young people just like I was who are watching that and they mm-hmm. can see that, you know, despite who you are um, and, and how you've been discriminated against and held back uh, historically, you can still prevail. It's um, so funny that you say that because I keep what I keep hearing is they're just turning people. They're just coming out of the way. People are making this shit up. And I'm like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. What's happening is 
They've mm-hmm. always been closeted people. Right. They, they've been gays and lesbians and trans people all right. over the place. Absolutely. It's only yeah. now that they have representation that they feel safe enough to come out of those closets, that they feel safe enough to stand in their truth in public. So it's right. not like they're making this shit up like there's all of a sudden something in the water and it's making people <laughs> um, LGBTQA. No. Right. Um, right. These individuals have always been there. And right. now that there's someone, um, and, and that's what I do love about the work that I do, because mm-hmm. I recognize that um, I position myself to be able to say things that other people in my community can't say, particularly black women can't say. So I don't right. speak for them, but I do speak on behalf of black women because I'm a black woman yeah. that um, white folks need to hear because yeah. they can't say it because they're going to get, you know, they're going to get fired. They're going to get reported. They're going to get all these other things. Right. Um, so it takes representation. It takes somebody to, somebody to go first. Right. And it's sad that still in 2020, there's always the first black blah, 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 blah. Right. First black blah, blah, blah. It's like, can we win? Are we going to get past that? But you know what? If it has to be, then I'll be the first. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100 percent. And I I am so grateful um, for you and all of these trailblazers in every industry, Mm -hmm. um, all of these folks that are out there causing a scene. Mm -hmm. What would you like to say in closing? In closing, I I would say that um, this has been a really great conversation and I I really look forward to the dialogue that it provokes. Um, But I think it's incumbent on all of us to do better, but we have to acknowledge that there's a power imbalance. And I hope that a lot of the white folks that are listening to this podcast really do the work that I hope they're already doing, but to look internally and think about all of the preconceived biases that you already have mm-hmm. um, in every you know area of life and to challenge yourself and to if you're gonna claim the, the label of woke, <laughs> if you're gonna claim the label of progressive, to hold yourself accountable to that standard. And the other thing is that we need to be making sure that in every single every single thing that we do and every action that we take, we are centering and prioritizing the most vulnerable of our marginalized communities. I mean, when I go into the ballot box on February 11th, the day of the New Hampshire primary, I'm not just voting in my own interest. Mm -hmm. I'm voting in the interest of the person that I know in my life that is the most vulnerable of the most marginalized community. Mm -hmm. Um, And and that I think is is really um, the, the frame of mind that so many people need to be in in order for us to be successful in causing a scene and making way for the positive, bold, radical, structural change that we need to see in this country. I'm so happy you said that. And that's a great place to end because this is the fault. This is the failing of whiteness. It always Mm -hmm. prioritizes itself. It's always about self-interest. And for Mm -hmm. us, it is always about community. We're always, if there's someone in our family who's the vulnerable, who's the most weak, who who is going to be targeted, we protect them at no, I mean, to no end. And I need white folks to start doing that. I need you to, to, and it seems to you as a foreign thing, but communities of color have been doing it forever. Because when we protect the most vulnerable, then all of us are safe. I agree. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause the Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause the Scene movement. 
Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause the Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseTheScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.